Scripture reading this morning will be taken from Acts chapter 2, verses 40 through 42. If you'd like to follow along in your pew Bible, it'll be page 967. Again, Acts chapter 2, verses 40 through 42. And with many other words, with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, "Save yourselves from this crooked generation." So those who received his word were baptized, and those. And there were added to that day about 3,000 souls. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. Good morning. It is good to see each of you. If you're a guest, we welcome you. Uh, It encourages us that you're here And we hope that we can be an encouragement to you. Uh, We have amazing things happening by the grace of God. Uh, We must count ourselves so thankful uh, to be a part of God's plan and God's work. Uh, To have three mission teams right now in the works with one returning and and two others that have just begun their work uh, on Friday and on Saturday. God truly is good to us. And then there's even more in store that really there's a lot on our plate this coming week. And, and we want to encourage everybody here to be praying the theme of this morning. But it is the constant activity in the life of every faithful Christian. Everybody be praying this week for the upcoming Vacation Bible School. Everybody be thinking, who can you invite Who is it that you could reach out to and let those kids know? uh, Are you able to bring them? Are you able to offer them a ride? What is it that you could do to encourage them? Uh, You know, I I, kind of by chance ran into a lady just yesterday. And when I started talking with her, I realized she had little kids. Invite her to vacation Bible school and I could no more get it out of my mouth before she said, I grew up going to church. I want my kids to know that. Now, now tell me more, okay? I think we may can do that. All right, keep in mind that so many people that are not religious, they've either been in the past and they want a relationship with God again, and they want their children to have that. Please be prayerful. Let's reach this community uh, for the glory of God. Let's make this the greatest success that we can. Growing with God will be the theme. It will not begin tomorrow, but one week from tomorrow, June the 25th, it'll be Monday through Thursday morning. Also, we'll continue our teen vacation Bible school, 6th through 12th graders, and it will be at the Mount Juliet Community Center, Mount Juliet Community Center in Charlie Daniels Park, also the very same times from 9 till noon, uh, beginning next Monday following tomorrow, uh, the 25th through the 28th, and I've shared with you before, I'm just so excited, uh, we're, we're working hard to put together Uh, Not only what we believe will be the best team VBS we've ever had, we believe it will surpass anything we've done by far, uh, so far as our team vacation Bible schools. And and so be praying about that, and we hope that great good will come out of that. The theme of it is the beautiful mess. Uh, There is real purpose and worth in our life that if we listen to the world's definition definition of beauty and purpose and worth, we're going to miss it. The world has made a mess of beauty, and God makes true beauty so beautiful. And our desire is to really pull back the layers that, of deception that society has painted and really get to the bottom of why we're on this earth and what is our purpose and etc. Also, this afternoon, we're excited that at 5 o'clock will be a stateside missions committee 
or, or not committee, but all the participants meeting. It's a training session. Uh, we'll be going to Elizabethton, Tennessee in just a few weeks. That particular date is June 24th. Uh, I'm sorry, July 7th. If that's a Friday, uh, if not Friday or Saturday, uh, oh, there it is on the screen, 7th through the 11th, and uh, that's Friday through Wednesday, and it should be a tremendous, tremendous trip. Also, and I hope I'm supposed to mention this, I've tried to find Mike Eeks to see if I'm supposed to mention this. I'll mention it to you guys, and if I'm not supposed to, I won't mention it next service. How's that? Uh, this afternoon is going to be really, really a special meeting. As far as a training meeting, it'll probably be the most special training meeting we've ever had. Uh, in 2007, a Mount Juliet person knocked on the door of a man named Thomas Mitchell that said he had no interest at all. Closed the door, threw the material up on the refrigerator. Several months later, reached up, grabbed the material, started reading it, was convicted. He said that he always wanted to find a church that followed only the Bible, but he didn't think one existed. And when he began reading the material months later, he was kind of amazed. And he actually called the preacher to confirm, this, is this true? Is this really who you guys are? And from there, his, his teenage boy became a Christian. His wife became a Christian. He became a Christian. And now in that area of North Kentucky, when an area church needs someone to fill in while their preacher is away... They call Thomas Mitchell. And he's going to come and he's going to be a part of that five o'clock meeting just to tell and remind all of us why we do this. Listen, the trip is rewarding. The trip to have fellowship with each other is powerful. But we go there to find souls. And I hope that, that you will be a part of that. If you just are still not even sure if you want to be a part of this mission trip, this would be a great meeting to come to, to learn about it, to see if you want to be a part of it. Pete Rose is considered one of the great baseball players of all time. He's the leading hitter of the major leagues. He played in 3,562 uh, games and, and had 14,000 plus at bats. He won three World Series rings, three batting titles, a Most Valuable Player Award, two Golden Gloves, a Rookie of the Year Award, played in 17 All-Star Games, and no one else has played in 17 All-Star Games at five different positions. He had the 44-game hitting streak. And if you were a, a youth in the 70s on the playground, you always made sure in kickball that you did the Pete Rose slide. Pete Rose reigned Major League Baseball in his day. But yet his lack of integrity, he betted on games while he played as a player and a manager of the Cincinnati Reds. Because of that, he hasn't been inducted into the Hall of Fame. Unless you think that's sad, imagine this. Imagine being Pete Rose Jr. trying to make it in the pros. He played minor league ball for for at least 19 years. He only had one time in 97 that he was called up for a short stint and just couldn't make it. But you know what he deals with? He says every game he's played, he's dealt with the heckling. Where when he goes up to bat, the opposing team's fans hold up dollar bills to mock his dad. He's dealt with all of the jokes that would be yelled through the fence about, do you have any money on this game like your dad? 
He says there's never a game that goes by that he doesn't deal with it. And he says this, Every time I take the field, I hear something. That's just part of my life. Am I bitter about it? Yeah. I think people should be abusive at their own cost, but they get protected by the fence. If you've had a good father and a man of integrity, you don't know exactly what Pete Rose Jr. experiences. You might be able to enjoy what I enjoy whenever I go somewhere and someone figures out who my father is. It's, oh, so you're Roy Shannon's boy. And it will almost always follow with a compliment. I tell you what he did for me one time. I tell you what, he's one of the best men I've ever known. It's it's those kind of comments that lead in to an open and warmth in an evaluation and in a relationship. But if you haven't enjoyed that, do you realize you can? You see, every one of us are offered an opportunity to be the son or the daughter of the greatest father who has ever lived. As a matter of fact, he's eternal. He's all-powerful and all-knowing. And he loves you more than your earthly father could ever love you. And he's done more for you than any other father has ever done for their children. He's an amazing father. And think what he offers. And the question is, do we accept it? Do we accept that gift? And along with that gift also comes the wonderful opportunity to talk to him. The wonderful opportunity to pray to him. When we think of a constant part of the life of Christians, no doubt it is prayer. 1 Thessalonians 5.17 Pray without ceasing. In Romans 12 and 12, we read to continue steadfastly in prayer. By way of introduction this morning, I'd like for you to go with me on a quick journey throughout the book of Luke. Luke, of course, is the author of this gospel that is about Jesus Christ. I want you to see Jesus' prayer life. And keep in mind, Luke also wrote a second volume. And his second volume was the book of Acts. And so what I'd like for you to see is that Luke really honed in upon the fact that Jesus was a man who was fervent and frequent in prayer. And he honed in on that same fact that anyone who is a truly devoted follower of Jesus Christ, in other words, in his church, they too follow those same characteristics. What is it that Jesus prayed? And when was it that Jesus prayed? As we think about the Gospel of Luke, we think about Luke the third chapter, and we see that when Jesus prayed, if I were to say to you that that the heavens opened and the Spirit came down and the Father said, Behold, this is my beloved Son, whom I'm well pleased. This is not in every Gospel, but in Luke's Gospel. Do you know when that happened? That happened as Jesus prayed. Jesus prayed at His baptism. And before He chose the twelve apostles, do you remember what He did the night before? Now listen... The entire night before he chose the 12 apostles. You say, well, he's God on earth. It's not going to be any problem for him to choose the 12. Oh, no. He relied heavily upon the Father through prayer. And the scripture tells us he prayed all night. 
before he chose the 12. Before confessing his Messiahship, saying, who do men say that I am? And they said, some John the Baptist, some Elijah. And then finally he said, who do you say that I am? Before he even asked the apostles about that, and then professed that he was the Messiah and that he was going to go to Jerusalem, and there that he would suffer many things and that he would end up dying. Now think of the shock that that was going to be to them. We know the shock because we can read further in the Gospel of Luke and we can see the fact that that shook the apostles' faith. Jesus knew it was going to shake their faith. So before he even announced it to them, what did he do? He spent deep time in prayer to the Father about this issue. If I were to say to you the Mount of Transfiguration... You'd immediately probably, if you know much about the scripture, conjure up a picture of of what that passage paints. But do you remember why they were up in that mountain? They went up in the mountain to pray. And the transfiguration took place during Jesus' prayer. And then the Garden of Gethsemane, probably all of us know that prayer was the whole reason he went into that garden because he needed strength to handle the temptation. And when the closest, Peter and James and John, fell asleep, he rebuked them for not praying because they were going to need the strength to handle the temptation that they were going to face that very same night. And you remember, I'm not saying it's this simple, but do you remember that night Jesus stayed faithful? And remember that night that Peter denied and the rest of them scattered? What did Jesus do in the garden? He prayed. He poured out his heart. What did the others do in the garden? They fell asleep that night. And so we see a couple other times in the book of Luke. Uh, In Luke the fourth chapter, we see that Jesus had been up healing till late apparently in the evening as people came from all over. And so he went to sleep that night, but he probably didn't get a long night's sleep because he got up before daylight and he went out by himself to pray. And the next morning, more from the village had come in in Luke the fourth chapter and and they were wanting Jesus to heal them more. But remember, he announced to them that his purpose was to go about preaching. How do you have that kind of focus? It was because, no doubt, that he had spent that time in prayer. And in Luke, the fifth chapter, has a very interesting passage. And and I want to urge you, if you feel like your life is on overload right now, jot this down. Go back and study Luke, the fifth chapter. The multitudes were coming to Jesus, and at times they were very demanding. But in verse 16 says that he frequently withdrew himself to go out to pray. We must have those times where we slow down, those times where we go in solitude, those times where we gather with God in prayer. And then one of the amazing times that Jesus references prayer is when he's talking to Peter and he says, Satan has asked for you. He wants to sift you like wheat. And Jesus says, but I prayed for you. And he tells him what he had prayed for him. Now, In Luke, the 11th chapter, what is powerful, it is in the beginning of this chapter, the disciples come and they say, teach us to pray. And he gives them what we sometimes call the model prayer. It's not given so that we would memorize it just to repeat it. But yet it's given to show us what prayer should be like if we're to pray like Jesus prayed. And it's amazing how simple this prayer is, how genuine and beautiful this prayer is, and how short this prayer is. It's only 66 words long. And yet it's after that prayer that I think sometime we miss some of the powerful aspects of this prayer. 
when he prayed what we sometimes call the Lord's Prayer, which by the way, if you want a longer Lord's Prayer, read John the 17th chapter. The whole long chapter is a prayer that Jesus prayed not that long before he died upon the cross. But now the prayer that has traditionally been called the Lord's Prayer, the shorter one that we're referencing here, please note this. There are two lessons, they're parables, that Jesus taught immediately after he taught this prayer. The first parable that he taught is there in verses 5 through 8. And it's about a man laying down at night and he has his whole household in bed. And somebody knocks on his door and it's one of his friends. And he knows that if he stays there, his friend is going to continue knocking because his friend has a guest and needs to borrow some bread. And so he says that he gets up and he answers the door because he knows his friend is going to be persistent. And he says, that's the way I want you to pray. Now, all of this we're getting to in just a few moments is we're going to see that we are not only to be praying in private, but prayer is a part of public worship. It's a part of the assembly. And so if we say, I wonder why we pray as often as we do. When Jesus gave the model prayer, he followed it up by saying, I want you to ask over and over and over again. Many times in my ministry, I've had people to say to me, they've said, well, I've asked the Lord once or twice about whatever it may be, but I don't want to continue to ask him. I, I know that would be disrespectful to him. Friends, that's not true. When Jesus taught on prayer, he also followed that up by saying, ask me, ask me over and over. And it's right after that he gives that parable that he also gives the teaching that says, I want you to ask. And if you ask, I'll give it to you. I want you to seek. And if you seek, you'll find it. I want you to knock and let me open the door to you. And it's from there that he says, what do earthly fathers do? If, if a son comes up to an earthly father and he asks for a piece of bread, is he going to give him a stone? Can you imagine how that break a little toddler's teeth? Oh, my little son, you want a piece of bread? Here, bite down on this. He says he asked for a piece of fish. You're going to give him a serpent that will bite him? He asked for an egg. You, are you going to give him a scorpion? He says, you know that evil fathers, in other words, compared to the heavenly father, all of us are evil because he's perfect and we're not. He's all powerful. We're not. We're weak. And so he says, if evil fathers can give good gifts, how much greater gifts... Can the heavenly Father offer us? And even in Luke's account adds that He can give us the gift of the Holy Spirit. Now, I want to remind you again. Think of Luke the 11th chapter. He gives the model prayer. And then He says, I want you to ask over and over and over. Persistence. And then He says, I want you to ask realizing that I am your Father. I can provide persistence and provision. You see... This requires humility. Who's going to ask over and over? Only someone who is humble. Who's going to believe that someone else will provide for them? Only someone who is humble. And so we see some powerful lessons there. But now as we look at this, I'd like for you to now think with me to Luke's second volume that he wrote. And that is the book of Acts. 
In the book of Acts, we see the church praying. And on this slide, you'll notice several times that the church prayed. And maybe we take this for granted. In this lesson, I'm just asking you, don't take this for granted. You remember, we want to approach the Father. You remember the topic of worship? We come together to worship God. He's on the throne high and lifted up. And what we studied last week in Hebrews, we want to approach Him in what is acceptable. Not what we would want, but what God would want. We want to pour out our love and our adoration to God. What does God teach us about prayer? in this great book that tells us about the beginning of the church and even gives us some insight to worship of the New Testament church. First, we see that prayer was a part of their regular meetings. Even just before the church was established in Acts, the second chapter, the group of disciples that's going to be there in Acts, the second chapter, had already gathered in Acts, the first chapter. And what they were doing, they were gathering together and a part of what they were doing was praying. We also see that from the text that was so capably read this morning. The church continued steadfastly. Listen to that. Continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine. We studied that last Sunday night. But we also see it in, the, in fellowship and the breaking of bread and in prayers. We must continue steadfast as a church in prayer if we are to worship the way the Lord wants us to worship. But notice there are other times, and I think this is real important for us to note, there are other times where the prayers were much more specific. Sure, we see times where the prayers seem more general, almost like the model prayer, where it covers several things. But there's other times where the prayer seems to be very, very specific when the church comes together. For example, in Acts the first chapter and 24, we see a very specific prayer as they were trying to decide which disciple would become the apostle that would replace Judas. And after their prayer, Matthias was chosen. In the sixth chapter, verse six, they were trying to choose seven Men that would help serve the widows. Now, as the church matured, these men would be called deacons. Before they appointed those men, they prayed for them. In the 13th chapter, verse 3, they were about to send out uh, Ananias, no, Barnabas, and Saul on what became the famed first missionary journey. And before they sent them out, they had a time of fasting and of prayer. And in the 14th chapter, in verse 23, when they came back through and they appointed elders in all of the churches, they appointed the elders with prayer. We also see during persecution that the church turned to prayer. And Acts, the fourth chapter, is a powerful, powerful time. We see the church going through great persecution with Peter and John being thrown into prison. And when the church came together to pray, and I want to pause here and ask you this. If some of our members right now, on some of the mission trips right now, were being persecuted, what would your prayer be? Isn't it interesting when you read Acts 4, the prayer was not, Lord, help this persecution to stop. The prayer was, Lord, help us to be bold that we will continue to speak your word amidst this persecution. We're going to get to in just a few minutes what it means to pray in Jesus' name. And it's not just a phrase that becomes a part of some kind of model prayer that we just stated and don't even know what it means. Do we know what it means when we say, we offer you this prayer in Jesus' name, the early Christians understood it. 
They understood the submissiveness that was involved in living the name of Jesus. Also, we see more persecution and more prayer in the 12th chapter and verse 5. And also, you remember in the 16th chapter, whenever the Philippian jailer was converted? You remember before the earthquake shook and the doors were open and he was converted? You remember what Paul and Silas were doing? Remember, they were there, uh, Peter and Silas, they were there praying and singing. And so we see that in times of persecution, that's what the early church did. Also, a very important point that we see forgiveness was offered through prayer for those that had already been baptized. So post-baptismal times when a Christian pray, uh, sinned, did they be baptized again or did they offer a prayer? And we see Simon the sorcerer being told to repent and to pray forgiveness. That goes right along with James the fifth chapter and verse 16 where we're told he's talking to those who were already Christians. They'd already been baptized into Christ and they were told to confess your sin one to another and pray one for another that the effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. And also we see at times of farewell that they would gather together to pray. Whenever Paul was talking to the elders of Ephesus in Acts the 20th chapter, whenever they finished, they, they fell on each other's neck and they kneeled and they prayed. The 21st chapter, we see another similar farewell, except this time it was men and, and it says wives and even children. And they were walking down a road and when they got as far as what those people were going to go, they bid uh, Paul farewell and it says they knelt right there in the the road and and they offered a prayer. So what what do we see from all of this? We see that the church of the New Testament was frequent and they were fervent. They were persistent, sometimes very, very specific in prayer. But I'd like for you to notice this. They understood what they were praying and when they didn't, they were corrected and told that it was wrong. Look in 1 Corinthians, the 14th chapter and verse 15. 1 Corinthians 14 and 15. What is the conclusion then? 1 Corinthians 14 and 15. What is the conclusion then? I will pray with the Spirit. I also pray with understanding. I'll sing with the Spirit and I'll also sing with understanding. Otherwise, if you bless with the Spirit, how will he who occupies the place of the uninformed, in other words, we've got guests in the assembly, how are they going to say amen at your giving of thanks since he does not understand what you say? For you indeed give thanks well, but others are not edified. What, what's the point here? Just real quick, the background is the 12th, the 13th, and the 14th chapter of 1 Corinthians goes together. That was the first century. There were miraculous gifts because the New Testament had not yet been complete. So how are people going to study God's will to know it if there's not a written New Testament to follow? There were men that had miraculous powers and some of them could speak other tongues. That would confirm that the message was the word of God. There are others that could prophesy. That would be speaking in the native tongue, but they would speak a message from God. The ones that could speak in tongues apparently become very, very uh, conceited. And, and they thought that their gift was better than any others. And they seemed to be kind of taking over the service. And Paul takes this opportunity to strongly correct them. And so it's in this passage, he said, I'd rather say five words with understanding than 10,000 words without understanding. Now, what's the principle? You say, well, today we don't have modern day miracles. And so, so what is this that, that could apply to us? The principle is still the same. Our prayers are to be a time that everyone understands them. Please note this. This may sound silly. I'm not trying to be silly. I think this is very important. When a man comes up to lead in prayer, he ought to be understood. If he's using a jargon 
that guests cannot understand, that is the exact principle in 1 Corinthians that, he, that the Lord is saying, you pray a prayer that people can understand. Number two, you can't understand something you can't hear. Listen, I know we don't all have the same voice. We don't all articulate the same way. But if somebody's mindset is, well, God hears me and that's all that matters. I've heard people say that. God hears me, that's all. That's not all that matters when you're leading a church in prayer. It's not the time to to whisper and muddle through your words. But it is a time, and this brings us to a very important point. Leading public prayer is not a man saying a private prayer while an audience eavesdrops. Public prayer is a man leading a prayer that the entire congregation is to be involved in praying. That's why it's under, that's why it's important that they be understood. And so therefore, the man is praying. But now, remember a few weeks ago, we established the fact that if we really are true worshipers, worshiping in spirit and truth, there's only one in the audience. So while the man is leading the prayer, everybody else is a participant in that prayer, praying to God. So if there's 500 people here this morning and we say, let's bow our head and pray, one may be leading the prayer, but 500 people are supposed to be participants in that prayer, approaching the throne of the Almighty God. And so it is so important that we realize prayer is not a time to daydream. It's not a time to, to feel like, okay, I'm, I'm off the clock right now in worship. This guy's leading a prayer and he's praying for all of us. No, he's leading us in prayer. And what a blessing that is. Have you ever thought how many times you pray, even in your private life, things that you've heard godly men pray in a public worship, that once you've heard that, you think to yourself in that prayer, I'm thankful that that's been prayed. I haven't been praying that. That's been an oversight on my part. What a blessing that is. But I'd like for you to notice this last thing. And brethren, I don't write the text. I just preach it. And I know that this ruffles some feathers, but the text clearly says, and the church says, amen. Amen is the so be it. The amen is saying, let it be true. We are all participants in the prayer. The idea is not there's one man in this entire audience praying and he's the only one that says amen. When the church says amen at the end of the prayer, it is everybody saying to God, that is my prayer. We sing prayers. And a lot of the time when we sing a prayer, what do we sing at the end of the prayer? We sing amen. Because that song is written to say, this is a prayer. And at the end, everybody that's singing this is going to sing, Lord, let it be true. We are participants in worship during a prayer, even if we are not the one leading it. The prayer is to be offered in Jesus' name. And that's by authority. And we've got to close with this. I'm going to show you real quickly on two slides, several passages. Look in John, the 14th chapter in verse 13. Jesus says, whatever you ask in my name, that will I do. In verse 14, if you ask anything in my name, I'll do it. John 15 and 16, he closes by saying, whatever you ask in the Father in my name, he will give you. And John 16 and 23, and in that day you will ask me nothing, most assuredly. Surely I say to you, whatever you ask my, the Father in my name, he will give you. In John 16 to 26, in that day you will ask in my name. Are you getting the point that Jesus is saying over and over and over, we need to pray in the name of Jesus. But it's not just a little memorization where we throw in this little plug at the end, right before the amen, and we say, in Jesus' name. 
As a matter of fact, there's nothing in the scriptures that says it has to be the end of the prayer. But the point is this. Praying in Jesus' name is saying, Lord, everything in this prayer, I submit to your will. Everything in this prayer, I want my life to be in line with your mission. What does that mean? That means I'm praying, Lord, your name, your authority, everything in this prayer, your authority be done. Your will be done, not my will. We didn't cover quite as much as what I'd hoped, but let's think for just a moment. What did we learn today? Number one, I've learned that public prayer isn't listening to a man leading a private prayer. Public prayer is when the whole church is praying together. Number two, I learned it's appropriate for prayers to be filled with various content, and yet on other times it's very appropriate for it to be very specific. Number three, I've learned that in Jesus' name is a statement of submission. James said, you don't have because you don't ask. But in the very next verse he says, sometimes you don't have because you ask amiss. In other words, we can't pray against Jesus' name, against His will, and expect God to answer the prayer. God will answer every prayer we pray when we are aligned with the will and the mission of Jesus. That's what we pray in Jesus' name. This morning, what a blessing it is to be able to talk to the Father. You know, my dad... He gets up really early in the morning. And now that he's retired, he doesn't get up as early as he did years ago. He used to get up at four most every morning. And so this morning being Father's Day, I was so tempted to call him at four this morning. But I let him sleep in until five, and I called him at five. And because uh, I knew that'd be about the time they were getting up. And I was so thankful when mom answered the phone. I said, hey, is he up yet? She said, he was just about to get up. I said, give him the phone. And... and uh, It was good. It was good to talk with my earthly father. Do you see and recognize and appreciate the tremendous blessing to talk to the heavenly father? If you don't savor that, I challenge you to study it and to meditate and really be convicted as to why. Why do you not savor those moments to talk to your almighty father in heaven? And how blessed we are to be able to do it together. If you're not a child of God, we'd love to assist you in any way we can. If you're ready to be immersed into Christ or come back to Him, if we can help you.